We're in a series on politics, which is all kinds of fun. There was no coup after first service to run me out. We, we survived, and so we're here in one piece. How many of you were here last week when we started the series? Cool. See some, see some hands. Most of you guys. So politics, uh, we are talking about the politics of the kingdom and how that interacts and relates to our context here. Yes, I realize that I saved this series for two days before the election, so uh, I totally recognize that some of you have a little bit of strong opinions, maybe just a little bit, but it's been fun. I talked to some people over the course of the last week and talked to some more people this morning, and some of them thought that, you know, last week was the best sermon they've ever heard, uh, and some thought that it was the opposite of the best sermon they've ever heard. But we survived. It's all good. I had some interesting conversations with some people, and, you know, some people said, hey, pastor, I love you. I appreciate you, but I have a question about this point or that point. Can we talk about that? Uh, and I absolutely love to do that. So we're going to continue here in this series. Last week, we talked about allegiance. We talked about how in the scriptures, the Bible talks about how God himself is the world's true king that God reigns over the nations, that God is seated on his holy throne. And we talked about how before we talk about Republicans and Democrats and complicated political issues, we start with this idea, this bedrock foundational idea that God is king and that God reigns over the nations and he has given leadership to his Messiah, his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus, as the risen and ascended Christ, co-rules with God. Colossians says that he's been given first place in everything. And so we talked about how, because that is the case, there's only one who deserves our allegiance. That yes, we are citizens of this nation, we live here in this country, but ultimately our allegiance is in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, our allegiance belongs to God, and our confidence is in Him. So that was last week. We talked about allegiance. Now, this week, I want us to examine an idea. I want us to examine an assumption. I want to examine an idea that, believe it or not, is so deeply ingrained in our politics no matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's so deeply ingrained in the way we think that most of us embrace this idea without even thinking about it. In fact, it's so fundamental to the American political system and all political systems that the Republicans and Democrats actually agree on this 100%. Some of you didn't know they agreed on anything 100%. But it's an idea that both parties wholeheartedly accept, and in fact, in different places all around the world, they hold to this idea as well. It's so deeply ingrained that most of us just assume it, that in the mix of the back and forth and the left and the right, we get caught up in the he said, she said, and Fox News said this, and CNN said that, and we're, we're caught up in the back and forth that we don't even realize that there's this underlying reality that both parties are actually built on, believe it or not. 
It's crazy, I know. Some of you are looking at me sideways. Stay with me here. We're going to be okay. In fact, it's an idea that's so, uh, we're so immersed in it that we almost don't recognize it. It's like the old story of a younger fish who's swimming along and he encounters an older fish and the older fish says to the younger fish, how's the water today? And the younger fish says, what in the world is water? Right? That it's like you could be so immersed in something your whole life that you almost don't realize it. In fact, all people everywhere have lenses through which they see the world. So I'm somebody who wears contacts and glasses, and these are the lenses through which I see the world. In fact, worldviews are kind of like lenses. There's no such thing as somebody who has no lenses and is completely unbiased. We all have ways of looking through the world. And so today, I want to question this political lens that all of us tend to look through. So here's the idea. Here, here it is. I've been building it up for long enough now. Here's the foundation. Here's the lens that both parties are built on. You'll see it on the screen. The best way to bring change is by gaining political power. Now, this is the idea that both parties are in on. So if we want to bring change, we've got to elect the right person. We've got to get the right people uh, in Congress, Senate, in the House, on the Supreme Court. And if we can gain political power, that is the best way to bring change. Now, we're going to look at this idea of power. Somebody say power. Politics is all about power. Politics is all about who's in charge, who's running the show. And it doesn't matter if you're in a democracy or in a dictatorship, politics is about power. So in our system, we are uh, in a republic, in a democracy, and so we have this idea that power corrupts people. So we are suspicious of kings and dictators and autocrats who hold on to all the power, so we spread out the power. We spread it out over three parties here in the United States. We have the executive branch, the presidency, which enacts the laws, enforces the laws. We have the Congress, which makes the laws, and we have the Supreme Court, which interprets the laws when there's a dispute. Anybody feel like they're back in civics class? Right? We have our three branches of government. Why? Because we, we spread out power because we don't want anybody to abuse their position. We have what the founding fathers called checks and balances. But you see, even in a system like this, the whole system is still built around getting power, right? So we want our party to control all three branches of government. Recently, in the early years of Donald Trump's term, the Republicans had a majority in all three houses, all three branches of government, right? So even in a situation like this, we still want to make sure that us, that our party has all of the power. Now, my responsibility as a minister is not to promote my party or my views or the things that I like to talk about. My role as a minister is to look at the text and let's look at what the Bible says about politics. Let's look at what the Bible says about power. So today I want to question the lenses a little bit. I want to question this idea that political power is the best way to bring change. So let's, let's 
see what the Bible says. Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Do what is good and you'll have the government's approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Okay, so here's what Paul says here about government. He says, government is good. Christians are not anarchists. We believe government is good, that God has placed government in its position to exercise wise leadership. So he says, if you do good, government will celebrate you. If you do bad, watch out because the government doesn't carry the sword for no reason. Basically saying this, politicians, leaders, government officials are God's servants. They're God's agents. And it's their responsibility to promote goodness and to restrain evil. That's the role of a godly government. Now, I think something all of us in this room could agree on 100% is that we would much rather have moral leaders than immoral leaders. Can I get an amen? We'd much rather have somebody who stands up for justice than somebody who stands up for injustice. Right? We want someone who does what's right. And if you read the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament prophets do not play around. They are very political. They, anybody ever been in a meeting where somebody's just getting shredded, like just straight up conflict? That's what, that's what happens when you read the Old Testament prophets. They, they'll look at politicians, they'll look at kings. They don't care if you're from Israel or from Babylon or from Egypt, shredded, like all of them, all of them, all, 100%. Like they critique these leaders when they uh, reject righteousness, when they neglect the poor, when they don't stand up for justice, when they're dishonest, when they use their position to promote themselves and to, to gain a comfortable life for themselves while people are struggling. So they're against corruption. They're against injustice. Now, the differences between us and Paul's audience in Rome is that you and I live in a democracy, and so this is strange. The Bible actually was not written to anybody. None of the books were written to people who lived in a democracy. Now, we don't know for sure what the Apostle Paul would say, but we could probably assume that based on these verses, that because government is good and government leaders are God's servants, that if we have a choice to vote, and if there's a candidate, who lines up with God's word, stands up for justice and righteousness, then it's probably a good idea to vote for that person. So this is something that you and I have the privilege of doing that people in that time, especially in the Roman Empire, didn't have. And yet I, I still have this question that as much as government is good, as much as government is in place by the Lord, the question that I have and the question which I think the Bible can help us answer is still, still kind of nagging in the back of my brain. It's still kind of, you know, like this rock in my shoe that I, I can't get out. I'm, I'm just wondering, is political power still the best way to bring change? That yes, government is good, it's in place by the Lord, but is that the primary way that God wants to bring change? Now, we know that 
Government is a way to bring change. Politics is one way to bring change. After all, we can look at somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King was a Baptist pastor. That's what the doctor in there is for. He wasn't a medical doctor. He was a minister. He had his degree in ministry. And he started this political movement to correct all sorts of injustices that were happening in this nation. So, so politics does good. Politics is great and wonderful, but is there a better way? You see, when we look back to the Old Testament, we can see that God also provides warnings about government. That as much as government is good, God says, I want you to watch out for putting your trust in political leaders. That as much as government is good, I want you to be careful you don't put too much of your confidence. There's a story in 1 Samuel where up until this point, the people of God, the Israelites, they've been rescued from Egypt. They've had Moses and Joshua and these judges to lead them. And now Samuel is a great prophet. But you see, ultimately, God wanted to be king over the Israelites. God wanted to be their leader. And what happened was the Israelites... Ultimately, they said, yeah, God, that's all nice and wonderful, but we want a king like the other nations. So here's what they say to the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel 8, verse 5, they said to Samuel, look, you are old. They're just buttering him up right here, right? Just starting off real smooth. Look, you're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. You see, in this sad story, the people of Israel, they want to put their hope and their confidence in an earthly leader and a political leader that can rescue them. And God says, you have really what you have done ultimately is rejected my leadership. Here's what Psalm 146 says. And if you hear nothing else in this series, I want you to hear this. Psalm 146.3, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. See, government is good, it's righteous, but our hope is not in princes, our hope is not in human beings. Here's what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man. I told you the prophets shred people. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. I don't know about you, but I could live with some less fear in my life. For his leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Kind of some echoes of Psalm 1 there. 
It says, blessed is the person who, whose confidence is in the Lord and who doesn't trust in the flesh, doesn't trust in man, who, who cannot save. And so this is a, 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 a critique of government or of the way we trust in government. And now when we come to the New Testament, we, we see a Messiah, we see Jesus, and he's coming around and he's, he's announcing good news about a kingdom, announcing good news that, that God's kingdom is at hand. And so in some ways that sounds pretty political, right? And yet it's not so black and white. See, Jesus, he, he does come as a king and he's bringing a kingdom, but he doesn't come like the kind of king you and I would expect. You see, a lot of the Jewish people at that time, they were under the leadership of the Roman Empire. They wanted a revolutionary who would overthrow the Romans. They wanted somebody who would take up arms. They could all take up the sword and lead a military coup against Caesar. And it had happened many times before and after the time of Jesus. And so they wanted a revolutionary. They wanted a revolutionary who would overthrow Rome. And yet when Jesus comes, he's a strange sort of king. Oh, don't get me wrong. He is launching a revolution, but it's a strange kind of revolution. He doesn't come and try and cozy up to the religious leaders and the political leaders. In fact, Jesus' best friends are average, ordinary fishermen. He hangs out with the poor. He hangs out with the outcasts. He hangs out with children and with servants. He hangs out with all the people that nobody else wanted. In fact, Jesus does not encourage military violence, but he tells his followers to turn the other cheek and to love their enemies. And if a soldier came and asked them to carry their pack one mile, he said, carry it two miles. And then he says that in his kingdom, the ones who are really blessed... They're not the rich and famous. They're not the ones with political positions and religious offices. He said the ones who are really blessed in this kingdom, they're the meek, they're the poor, they're the mourners, they're the persecuted, they're those who hunger and thirst. And so Jesus introduces this upside-down kind of kingdom, this upside-down kind of revolution, and the Gospels, they're building up to this high point. Like half of the Gospel is leading up to the week that Jesus dies and his crucifixion. The vast majority of the Gospels. They're, they're building up to this moment where Jesus dies on the cross. And so it's this strange revolution where instead of a great victory where he kills his enemies and he saves the princess and they all live happily ever after... There's this upside-down climax where instead of reaching the top, Jesus reaches the bottom. Instead of killing his enemies, he is killed by them. In fact, he doesn't even put up a fight. It's this weird moment where the gospel writers say this is the great moment where instead of reaching the high point, he reaches the low point. Now, before we talk about the cross as a symbol of religious meaning, religious value. The cross, way before it was a religious icon, it was a political icon. 
In fact, the cross was well known. Many nations in the ancient world used it, and they would use it to put their enemies to death. The cross was the very symbol of those who were in charge, those who had power, and it was the symbol for those who had lost their power to end up on it. There's this horrifying story of a hundred years before Jesus, there was a slave revolt led by a guy named Spartacus. He was a slave, he revolted, and he got all these slaves together, and they were going to set themselves free. And their mission was a failure, and so the Roman leadership crucified thousands of them on this road called the Appian Way, one of the most famous roads in Italy at the time. It ran from Rome in the north all the way to a city called Capua in southern Italy, 120 miles. And for 120 miles from Capua to Rome, there were thousands of crosses stationed all along the road as people traveled to the city of Rome. Thousands of crosses. It was a very clear political statement of here's who's in charge here. Here's who's running the show. And if you disagree with me, guess where you're going to end up? It was a very clear political message. Now, what happens is in the Gospels, this strange, stunning, and mysterious thing happens. That the cross, which is the symbol of being powerless, the cross, which is the universal symbol of defeat, somehow becomes the climax of the Gospels. It becomes the climax of this kingdom-bringing political movement that Jesus was launching. And it doesn't make any sense at all. It was revolutionary and confusing 2,000 years ago, and it's revolutionary and confusing even today. It's somehow in the mystery of God The cross is the moment for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, read the Gospels. The cross is the moment when Jesus becomes king. It doesn't make any sense. It looks to all the world like his mission failed. It looks to all the world like he was defeated. And yet, somehow, on the cross, something strange was happening, that He did not slay his enemies. He was nailed to a tree by them. He was lifted up, not in honor, but to die. He was given a crown all right, but it was a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. Soldiers were bowing down saying, Hail, King of the Jews, but they were saying it in mockery, not allegiance. And yet somehow in the mystery of God, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want us to know that that's the moment when Jesus becomes king. That's the moment when the great victory is taking place for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But it is the power of God. Somebody say power. It is the power of God to those who are being saved. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. 
Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now look at this last verse here, fascinating. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So here we're talking about politics. We're talking about how politics is all about power. And yet at the center of our worldview is a guy who was killed by the political powers of his day. And yet the Apostle Paul says here that God's weakness is stronger than human power. Somehow in this strange way, Jesus takes the world's symbol for defeat the world's symbol for the losers, the world's symbol of being broken, the world's symbol of powerlessness, and somehow in the mystery of God, he takes that very symbol and he turns it into the greatest display of power the world has ever seen. I don't even get it. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. Some of you would probably hope that as a pastor, at least Hopefully, I have the cross figured out. And let me tell you, I'm still reading it, and it's fascinating and beautiful. It's stunning. It's revolutionary. That if you want to talk about politics, you want to talk about power, and you say, Pastor, where's the greatest display of power in the Bible? Where does it show us God's great power? I could point you to Exodus and the 10 plagues on Egypt, and the the Red Sea being split wide open. I could talk to you about Elijah calling down fire from heaven. I could talk to you about Jesus the Messiah walking on water, feeding the 5,000 with a few loaves. I could talk to you about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And yet, the Bible makes it very clear that if you want to see the greatest display of power, you look to the cross. And I know that in front of the eyes of the whole world, it looks like weakness. But somehow, it's the power of God for those of us who are being saved. It's the very power of God in action. And so here, as we begin to put the pieces together, a new picture begins to emerge. You see, the way this world's governments operate They rule from the top down. They rule by enforcing the rule of law. They rule through the sword. That's what Paul said in Romans 13. The government doesn't bear the sword for no reason. And so the government's role is to enforce change, to restrain evil. And that is a good thing given to us by God. Yet nevertheless... The Bible reveals a greater kind of power, and it's the power of the cross. And so we have these two powers. We have the power of the sword, which is how earthly governments operate, and then we have the power of the cross. What is the power of the cross? What is this power which is greater than all other powers in this world? What is the power that God displayed in his Messiah. I'll tell you what it is. The power that Jesus brings is the power of humble, sacrificial, self-giving love. That is the power 
that Jesus used to turn this world upside down. And 2,000 years later, you and I can look back and see that the cross is the turning point of history. The cross is the moment where Jesus launched an upside-down revolution, and it turned the world upside-down too. And how did he do it? He did it not by going up, but by going down. He did it not by killing his enemies, but by dying for them. He did it not by becoming a king, but by becoming a servant. This is the kind of kingdom where power comes from being last instead of first. This is the kind of kingdom where children and servants are the greatest of all. This is a kingdom where generosity is more valuable than keeping your money for yourself. This is a kingdom where the meek are blessed and the mourners are comforted and those who hunger and thirst are filled. This is a kingdom where the king himself comes as the greatest servant of all. And it's this strange, mysterious, upside-down power which has turned the world around to this day. You see, in the first century, that would be hard to believe. But you and I have 2,000 years of church history to look back on. And you and I can look and know for sure that nobody's worshiping Caesar anymore. But 2,000 years later, millions and billions worship Jesus as the Son of God. Which one do you think had real power? You know what's fascinating? If you would have told Caesar that he would be outdone by a guy he crucified, he never would have believed you. Nobody would have believed you. In fact, it was Jesus, not the lion, but Jesus as the lamb, which somehow in the mystery of God, which looked like foolishness and weakness, has outlasted all the empires of this world. All kings, presidents, prime ministers, outdone by a servant. Who would have guessed? It sounds crazy, right? It sounds unexpected. And so this is what one scholar named N.T. Wright, it's what he calls the double revolution. He says, in Jesus' day, you had two camps. You had those people who wanted to side with Rome and promote Rome. And then on the other hand... You have those who wanted to start a violent military revolution against Rome and set up a Christian kingdom, a kingdom of God. And so you had the kingdom of God people on one hand, the the kingdom of God empire, and you had Rome's empire. And you have Jesus who comes on the scene, and yes, he's a revolutionary. Yes, he's a better king, but he's not a king that any of us expected. And so this scholar, N.T. Wright, He says it's a double revolution, that he launched a revolution, but he did it in a revolutionary way. Does that make sense? He launched a revolutionary kind of revolution. It was a revolution where he sent in servants instead of soldiers. He sent in children and the poor and the meek and the broken. And that is the way that this revolution has changed the world 2,000 years ago. And it's that humble, sacrificial, self-giving love which is still changing the world today. Now, if that's true, if you and I believe that the sacrifice of Jesus, that the power of a servant who gave his life as a ransom for many, if you and I really believe that to be true, then that should change the way we view everything. 
In fact, when you follow Jesus, you don't just have Jesus as a nice cherry on top and keep believing everything else you believed. No, not at all. The cross changes the very foundation of what we believe, and then we rebuild everything else on top of that. And so what that means is the cross shapes our view of everything. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. We quoted from him last week in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See, we don't just believe in the cross. We don't just believe in Jesus the Messiah, but rather the cross becomes the new lens through which we see the world. The cross becomes the new foundation that we see, but also because by it and through it, we see everything else. Now, here's where I might get into a little bit of trouble, but stay with me here. Jesus, when you read the Gospels, did not need Caesar to build his kingdom. How many of you would say when you read the Gospels, you never saw Jesus trying to work with the political leaders? How many of you tracking with me? Anybody? 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 (laughs) Guys? Guys? Jesus, in fact, quite the opposite, far from trying to work with the political leaders, was actually killed by the political leaders of his day. I know, it's crazy. Jesus was killed by the politicians of his day. So Jesus did not, and if I can say this, has not ever needed Caesar to build his kingdom. He doesn't need it. He has never needed the political powers of this day because Jesus operates with a better power. And in the light of the cross, it's not that political power is bad. Again, it's in place by the Lord. It's just that political power in the light of the cross becomes a second-tier power. Yes, it's good. You and I could all agree. We'd rather have a good politician than a bad one. We'd rather have a just leader than an unjust one. But in the light of the cross, you and I find a better power. And so here's my proposal for you this morning. Here's what I'd like to propose. Here's what I would like to submit to you. Maybe, just maybe, if Jesus didn't need political power and in fact was killed by the political leaders of his day, if Jesus didn't need political power, what if you and I don't need it either? I wasn't expecting to get a lot of amens on that one. I'm an equal opportunity offender this morning. I'm offending all the people. I'm not, I'm not anti the left or anti the right. I'm not even anti people in the middle. I'm not promoting this or that. Here is all I'm saying. All I'm saying is, based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we find in the Gospels where the real power is. I'm not against political leaders. I'm just against the idea that we need Caesar to build Jesus' kingdom. 
I'm just against the idea that God is nervous about the election on his throne. I'm just against the idea that if this or that candidate gets elected, it's all over. Church, he reigns. And he's given us a better allegiance and a better power to bring change to this city. What if you and I embraced the double revolution? I'm not saying give up the fight. I'm not saying quit the revolution. In fact, as Christians, if you and I read the Bible right, there will be issues that you and I need to be very passionate about. I'm not saying be a political centrist. Some of you might say, well, Joey, you're just an independent. You don't like the parties and you don't want us to like them either. Not at all. If you read the Bible, there will be topics and issues that as Christians we should fight for. And we should stand up unapologetically. Absolutely. I'm not saying give up the fight. I'm just saying let's fight in the right way. I'm not saying give up the revolution. I'm just saying join the revolutionary kind of revolution. What if it was God's will to change America? What if it was God's will to change this nation by his people going down instead of up? What if it was his will for his people to love their political enemies instead of debating with them on Facebook? I know it's a radical idea. I know it's crazy. Easy, too far on that one, too far. Listen, y'all, if we prayed for people on the other side of the aisle, as much as we complained about them, we'd be in revival right now. I'm just saying, y'all, we need a move of God. And what happens is the cross has revealed that the real power is not in D.C., it's not in the U.N., it's not in the European Union, it's not in some dictator who thinks he's running the show. It's in this mysterious, upside-down power of the cross. And that is where people change. That's where the real action happens. What if Christians were known for becoming the servants of all people? Known as those who loved all people, even their enemies. And that when our enemy wronged us, we turned the other cheek. That when the one side picks up swords, we lay our swords down. I know it's crazy. Listen, loving your enemies is just as radical in 2020 as it was in the year 30 AD. Loving your enemies is never the cool thing to do. Loving your enemies is never the popular thing to do. And yet that is what Jesus has commanded us. See, political power is good. It's righteous. Government leaders are God's servants. But in the light of the cross, you and I have found a better power. And so listen, if, if there's a candidate who lines up for what's right, absolutely vote for him. But as your pastor, my only caution is this, vote with an open hand. And whatever happens, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your confidence in the flesh because we found a better power. In fact, I would even go as far as to say, if you and I, we elected the perfect candidate, if there was a platform 
that was 100% right, if there was a political leader that was 100% perfect, and we put that government in power in America for 100 years, let me tell you something, it still wouldn't change people. Because political power and even good laws don't change people. In fact, if we know anything from the Old Testament, it's that the law doesn't change anybody. Listen, I hope we have good laws. But Moses, you know where he got the law? He got it from the literal, audible voice of God. There was a cloud of glory, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, so much so that the Israelites, they didn't even want to go up on the mountain. They said, Moses, you go, you talk to God, and you could just translate to us, because we don't even want to hear it. Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and the law. He comes down with this perfect law. Listen, you and I are not going to get a better law than Moses got on Mount Sinai. Not going to happen. And you know what we see in the Old Testament? It didn't change people. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with us. The problem wasn't that the law was bad or unjust. The law was perfect. Paul says the problem was that the righteous commandments of the law came into contact with wickedness within me. And so you see, listen, governments change from the top down. They force change. The government doesn't bear the sword for no reason after all. That's how governments operate, and that's a God-given thing. But you see, that only changes people so much. If you and I are gonna take people out of darkness and into God's marvelous light, we're gonna need a better power than political power. If you and I are gonna take people bound in sin and take them from being dead to sin and alive to God, you and I need a better power. And it's the power that is revealed in the self-giving love of Jesus the servant. Revealed in the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. And I can say it on the flip side too, that if the party of your worst nightmare got in power for the next hundred years, guess what? God's kingdom would still grow. Why? Because we have a better power. We have a, a stronger power, which to all the world, it looks like weakness, but somehow it's the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't matter if the worst party imaginable gets in office. As terrible as that would be, it would not stop the expansion of the kingdom of God. If we look at the Roman Empire, Christians were being put on crosses, they were being burned at the stake, they were being fed to lions in the Colosseum, and for all Caesar's power, he could not stop the kingdom of God from growing. Why? Because we have a better power. We have a greater power. We have a power which to all the world looks like going down. It comes by losing your life. It comes by loving your enemies. It comes by serving people who persecute you. It comes by giving away your time, giving away your money, giving away your gifts and talents and abilities. And it involves giving and giving and giving until you've given away everything, even your own life. And yet somehow in the mystery of the cross, God takes that weakness, he takes that brokenness, he takes that humility, 
And he says, that is where I will display my power. As we close here, as we examine here, rounding the bend towards home, as we examine this question which we started with, this question of, is political power the best way to bring change? It turns out that, after all, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. It is given to us by the Lord, and yet God has revealed to us a better way. God has revealed to us a stronger power. And my hope for you is that if you vote, you would do so biblically, but that you would do it with an open hand. Not putting your trust in princes. Not putting your trust in man that cannot save. See, there's all sorts of political revolutions happening. Revolutions on the left and revolutions on the right and everywhere in between. But Jesus gives us a double revolution. He gives us a revolution which to the entire world looks like weakness, foolishness, and death. But I'm telling you, if you and I can embrace this radical, upside-down idea, you and I will find, along with the Apostle Paul, that believe it or not, in a strange and beautiful way, the weakness of God is actually stronger than all the power of this world.